0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Solutions Watch, that weekly series where week in and week out, we examine the ways that you can change your life for the better and change the world in the process. And we have such a world-changing idea in store for you today. But in order to get there, we're going to have to cast our minds back to a gloomy incident that took place on a chill spring evening in New York in March of 1964, (laughs) Specifically, March 13th of 1964, when a 28-year-old bartender named Kitty Genovese was returning from a late-night shift and was brutally stabbed outside of her apartment in Queens. Now, the story of that incident, as reported by the New York Times, became a national news story and provoked much outrage and soul-searching among the American population at the time, not because a murder had taken place in New York, but specifically because of the witnesses' reaction to that murder. As reported by the Times, for more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice the sound of their voices and the, the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. That was two weeks ago today. But Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick M. Luson, in charge of the borough's detectives and a veteran of 25 years of homicide investigations, is still shocked. He can give a matter-of-fact recitation of many murders, but the Kew Garden slaying baffles him, not because it is a murder, but because the good people failed to, to call the police. A harrowing story. There's just one problem with that story. It was fake news from top to bottom. In fact, the murder did happen, but all of the details of that murder, including the 38 witnesses sitting there watching, doing nothing was flat out wrong, as even the Times itself was forced to admit uh, 50 years later, um, from a few years ago, um, when the killer who died in prison died, they had this moment of reflection in their story about that death. While there was no question that the attack occurred, and that some neighbors ignored cries for help, the portrayal of 38 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous, the article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three. And afterward, two people did call the police. A 70-year-old woman even ventured out and cradled the dying victim in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genevieve's died on the way to a hospital. So the account of the 38 witnesses coldly, cold, cold-heartedly ignoring the cries for help of this woman that they watched getting stabbed to death w- was not exactly true. Um, and all of the soul-searching that that very dramatic story prompted may have been misplaced, but it did lead to an interesting development in the field of psychology where in search for a solution of how such an event could take place the idea of the bystander effect first began to be theorized. So, the bystander effect, long story short, um, is very commonly understood and talked about to this very day, just taking a short synopsis from Why Not? Psychology Today. The bystander effect occurs when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening in an emergency situation against a bully, or during an assault or other crime. The greater the number of bystanders, the less likely it is for any one of them to provide help to a person in distress. People are more likely to take action in a crisis when there are few or no other witnesses present. So it's counterintuitive, perhaps. You would think in a crowded space with a lot of people around to help, you would be more likely to actually receive help from someone. But that isn't necessarily the case. And although the bystander effect was used originally to explain this bizarre action surrounding the murder of Kitty Genovese, and although that was based on a fake news story, the bystander effect turned out to be real, at least to some extent, with a lot of qualifications, and half a century of research has taken place in various experiments, through various permutations, looking at various different degrees of variables and things that can be changed in these situations and what they might tell us about this effect, etc., etc. And oh, by the way, in fact, CCTV footage of actual real-life emergency situations, note that it is in fact the norm for intervention to take place in real-life conflicts. So there's a lot of caveats and things to be added, and I'm not going to attempt to summarize half a century of research in a few glib sentences. But the long story short is that there is a bystander effect that is real and is measurable.
1: We decided to try to create a relatively ambiguous situation to which we could see how people responded. We thought that one kind of thing that comes up that's often hard to tell whether it's a real emergency or not uh, has to do with fire.
2: see smoke coming through the vent, and it is ambiguous. What do you do?
1: Hey, um, there's, there's smoke coming out from under the door in that room where I was mm-hmm. spilling out the questionnaire.
2: Almost everybody does that if they face the smoke alone. Now let's have you face the smoke with two strangers. Mm-hmm. One person can be seen glancing at the other. The other is continuing to fill out the questionnaire. It's getting a little more smoky in their room, but nonetheless, you stay in the room. By and large, people surrounded by people who react as if there's nothing wrong, don't respond. Everybody sees the other people not reacting, so they create a definition of the situation. No emergency.
3: To test their theories about how groups and individuals respond differently to a crisis, Darley and Latane conducted a second experiment. This time, the emergency was clearly defined. First of all, I would like to thank the two of you for being here today to help out in this study. In this experiment, one student was asked to communicate via intercom with another student down the hall. If somebody, give me
2: a little help here, because I'm I mean, having a problem. I've got one, one of these...
3: Coming on. What sounded like a real seizure in the subject's headphones was just a tape recording of an actor playing a role for the experiment.
2: If somebody would give me a little help or somebody or help or if you knew there was nobody else but you to help, you got up, you opened the door of your room, and you headed off to find the person. On the other hand, if there were three or four other people present who you heard,
3: I would like to thank the three of you for being here today to help us with this study. We are interested
2: in. You are much less likely to respond yourself.
3: Somebody,
2: give me a little little help here. I'm a real problem, problem right now. Help me out. The responsibility any individual feels for helping is diffused, when there are other people who could also help.
0: Now, this effect may not be all that surprising in the light of other psychological research that I have referenced in the past on the Corbett Report, like, for example, the Ash Conformity Experiment.
1: But an experiment is not a public opinion, poll. It examines behavior under the pressure of social forces, as the experiment of Solomon Ash reveals. The experiment
4: you'll be taking part in today involves the perception of lengths of lines. As you can see here, I have a number of cards, and on each card there are several lines. Your task is a very simple one, you're to look at the line on the left and determine which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. All right, we'll proceed in this order. You'll give your answer. Only
1: one of the people in the group is a real subject, the fifth person with the white t-shirt. The others are confederates of the experimenter and have been told to give wrong answers on some of the trials. The experiment begins uneventfully as subjects give their judgments. Two. 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 Three. 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 But on the third trial, something happens. Two. 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 Uh, Two. The subject denies the evidence of his own eyes and yields to group influence. Ash found subjects went along with the group on 37% of the critical trials. But he found through interviews that they went along with the group for different reasons. One. One. They must be right. There are four of them and one of me. Uh, One. This subject's yielding is based on a distortion of his judgment. He genuinely believes that the group is correct. One. 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 Two. One. Two. 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 I know they're wrong, but why should I make waves? Two. In this case, the subject knows he is right, but goes along to avoid the discomfort of disagreeing with the group. Here, the distortion is at the level of his response.
0: Two. 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 Or the Milgram experiment. In 1961, psychologist Stanley Milgram conducted a now famous experiment into the public's propensity to obey perceived authority figures. In the experiment, ordinary men and women were tricked into administering what they believed to be painful and even fatal electric shocks to complete strangers on the pretense that they were helping a scientist conducting research into memory and learning.
1: Uh, We wanted to find out just what effect different people have on each other as teachers and learners and also what effects punishment will have on learning in this situation.
0: But that memory research was just a cover story. In fact, both the scientists and the strangers were actors. The only one not in on the sham was the one delivering the shocks. The real experiment was designed to see how far those ordinary men and women would go in inflicting torture on others when commanded by a perceived authority figure.
1: Incorrect. You'll now get a shock of 75 volts. Soft hair.
0: He kind
1: of did some yelling in there.
0: Continue, please. The study is famous in the annals of psychology because the results were so completely unexpected. Most psychologists predicted that only a very small percentage of the participants in the study would continue delivering shocks past the point where those shocks could be fatal. Instead, a staggering 65% of the test participants proceeded all the way to the maximum, supposedly lethal, voltage.
2: That is incorrect. This one will be 195 volts. Oh. The correct one... Let me out of here! Slow, Dan. Let me out of here! My heart's bothering me! Let me out of here! You have no right to keep me here! Let me out! Let me out of
3: here!
0: Let me out! Continue, please. Let me out of here! My eyes go out! Go on! Let me out! Let's repeat that. 65% of participants, ordinary men and women who thought that they were volunteering for a simple experiment about memory and learning, were willing to deliver what they sincerely believed to be potentially fatal doses of electricity to random strangers simply because an authority figure assured them that it was necessary to continue with the experiment.
2: To the next phrase is Let fast. Out. Let me out! Let me out! Let me out of here! Let me bird, out. Let me car, train, plane.
3: Continue, teacher.
2: That is incorrect. This will be 3:45. The correct answer is fast, bird.
0: Yes, it is a sad fact of basic human psychology, but a fact nonetheless that all things being equal and various conditions being in place, if we see other people ignoring someone in distress or we see other people blatantly lying about obvious and identifiable reality or if we see other people blindly following orders from authority figures that they know to be wrong, then we are more likely to fail to intervene or to lie about observable reality or to follow those orders ourselves. Now, this is pretty dark stuff for a Solutions Watch episode, isn't it? Well, let's turn things around then because there is an interesting corollary or corollary, if you happen to be of the American persuasion, uh, to this observation, namely that if we see someone reaching out to intervene and help someone in distress or if we see someone standing up and boldly speaking the truth about self-evident reality, or if we see someone questioning authority and not doing what they're told when they know it to be wrong, we are less likely to do that thing ourselves. We are more likely to follow the example of the person who is standing up, even if it is a single individual in a crowd. As long as one person is standing up and doing that thing, we are more likely to follow in that example. Now, this holds true in all of the various experiments we've talked about today. It holds true, for example, with the bystander effect.
4: Four minutes later, and 34 people have passed without stopping.
2: Well, people don't really want to know they just haven't got the time. Well, they have got the time. They just don't want to get involved.
4: Unwittingly, these strangers have silently formed a temporary group with a rule don't get involved. They're afraid to stand out from the crowd and won't take action if no one else does. This woman has clearly spotted Ruth, but she conforms to the rule and does nothing. Watch what happens, though, when someone else helps. You
2: right? You right? Yes, thank you. Sure, you look a bit clicky, you know what
4: I mean? She suddenly oh, finds sure. herself in a different group with a new rule. To help.
3: sit uh, up. She doesn't look well, does she? You Yeah. First, I thought she was dead. Then I saw, check to see if she was breathing or not. And I looked around, and I couldn't believe that no one had noticed her because there was a
0: bloke sat there just absorbed in reading a newspaper. It holds true in the Ash Conformity experiment. In
1: the previous experiment, the naive subject stood alone against the group. In this variation, Ash gave the naive subject a partner, here seated in the third position, who also gives the correct response. One, one, two, one, two. With a partner yielding drops to only 5% of the critical trials compared to 37% without a partner. Although subjects report warmth and good feeling toward the partner, they typically deny that he played a role in their own independence. The partnership variation shows that much of the power of the group came not merely from its numbers, but from the unanimity of its opposition. When that unanimity is punctured, the group's power is greatly
0: reduced. And, as I've pointed out before, it also holds true in the Milgram experiment. Yet... And here we get to the real lesson of the Milgram experiment. If the teacher saw other teachers disobey the psychologist and refuse to deliver the shocks, they would disobey too.
3: Now, I said he tested a 1,000 subjects. In any one study, it's only 50 or 60. Let's look at the other 16 studies. In each study, he varies one aspect of the social situation. We call that experimental variations. So in study 16, the percentage of people going to 450 volts is 91%. Nine out of 10 people go all the way. Why? In study 16, you come in and they say, we're running a little late. Why don't you sit and wait till the other person finishes? And you see a confederate looking like you go all the way to the end. In study number five, only 10% go, go all the way. In study five, you come in and you see people like you rebel. That says we are powerful social models for other people. If you model evil behavior, it's going to spread to others. If you model good behavior, caring behavior, compassionate behavior, it's going to spread in a positive way.
0: This is the surprising conclusion that has been scrubbed from most accounts of the Milgram experiment. Disobedience, once modeled, becomes an option in the mind of the public. This is useful. This is important. This is empowering stuff. We can flip people's tendency to go along with the crowd, go along to get along, on its head by simply modeling for them what they, what at least some percentage of them already know. And this is a point that I often make, that there are more people out there that agree with you or know that something is wrong than you believe, because everyone is under the mass hypnosis put out through the mainstream media that Everyone is going along with this agenda and you're a fringe wingnut and you're all alone and no one else believes any of this, so we self-censor. We look around and we see, well, no one's kicking up a fuss. Well, I'll go along with it. And it's, it's not a conscious decision that people are making. It is simply a fact of human psychology. Most people, most of the time, all things being equal, will go along with the group even when they know it to be wrong And for precisely those reasons, when someone, anyone, even one individual stands up to that group, there can be a difference. At the very least, it prompts other people who are already inclined to show their willingness to join that cohort. Now, obviously, this is applicable to our situation today, is it not? It is. And as a demonstration of that, Interestingly enough, just in in the past 24 hours, I note a comment on CorbettReport.com regarding my previous conversation with Ian Davis on the pseudo-pandemic that just went up the other day. If you haven't watched it yet, I suggest you do so. I think it's an interesting conversation about an interesting book in which we talk about the, the disinclination of the public to look at some of these facts and what that means for how we proceed from here. And uh, No Soap Radio, who's a uh, common commenter on the comment section at CorbettReport.com, that regulars at CorbettReport.com will probably recognize, left an important point about this and really stopped to cogitate on the meaning of this. She wrote, "'Clear thinking and articulate speaking is so therapeutic to listen to. Disinclination to recognize hard facts.'" It's true that in the face of such deeply ingrained prejudices and delusional assumptions sprung from generations of meticulously cultivated fear, example would seem to be the only effective method of persuasion. Giving the example of something better, For the moment, I need to continue concentrating on closing that gap between awareness and action, as this is perhaps the only thing I can do to keep my first two children from yielding to the pressure of getting the poison injection and, more challenging still, dissuading my third from getting any boosters, despite pressure from and the bad example provided by his father. Man's behavior is not dictated by logic, but perhaps more by imitation, giving the example would seem to be the best hope for humanity. I think so. And I think that is very much along the lines of what this research shows to be the case and what I think we all, we all know to be true. That when you stand up and speak the truth and take action and show people how to act or a better way to act, there will be people who will join you in that action assuming that it really does correspond to observable, object, uh, objective reality. You've heard it before. You've heard be the change. You've heard set an example for others. Those are not mere words. Those speak to a fundamental underlying truth about social psychology, something that we can tap into and use in our efforts to spread Not just awareness, not just understanding of the problems or the solutions that we face, but actually bringing them into existence in the real world, bridging that gap between knowledge and action. So uh, I think this is about emboldening those people who are out there, who do agree with you, more so than you might even suspect, maybe living with you right under your own nose. I've had feedback on that front recently from people saying, the good thing about all of this is that I'm really finding out there's a there are people in my community I never would have guessed are on my side who are on my side. It's very interesting to see. Yes, and you are starting to find out because when you speak out and when you are not shy about what you believe or about doing what you know to be right, Other people, you will find other people on your side. You have to provide the social proof to show them that it is okay to think, say, or do things differently, and they will come along with that. So there are some practical things that we could address here in how to do that. And I think one thing to note is the more specific you are in the example that you our setting and the things that you think would make a better approach to the problems, whatever that is, in whatever space or whatever realm of this problem you're approaching. And there are many, many, many back issues, back episodes of Solutions Watch Now that you could draw on. Um, for example, just just last week we were talking about RICO rings and things like that. If you think the RICO ring is the example, yeah, you can proselytize for it. You can tell people about it. You can talk till you're blue in the face. You can try to to talk up the wonders of it. But by actually doing it, participating it, and then showing and modeling the results of this, look, I have, I, I, met all these people, we're doing this great thing, I've got all this food, it's wonderful. That is the more persuasive uh, method of presenting an idea to people. And similarly, in, in specific situations, even talking again about the bystander effect and trying to get help in a crisis situation— the most effective way is to be very particular and to hone in on certain people and giving them specific things that they can do to help rather than just saying, help me. You you hone in on particular people and you tell them what you need them to do and you will be more likely to actually elicit help in that situation, something that, again, has been talked about time and time again in the scientific literature. We can take this, for example, from a, an interesting book called Influence, Science and Practice, available, of course, for free on archive.org, which has an entire chapter on social proof that does talk about the Katie Genovese incident and the bystander effect and other such things, and has a, a section specifically on how to actually elicit real help in a real crisis. It says, many are called, but only one should be chosen. Based on the research findings we have seen, my advice would be to isolate one individual from the crowd. Stare, speak, and point directly at that person and no one else. You, sir, in the blue jacket, I need help. Call an ambulance. With that one utterance, you would dispel all the uncertainties that might prevent or delay help. With that one statement, you will will have put the man in the blue jacket in the role of rescuer. He should now understand that emergency aid is needed. He should understand that he, not someone else, is responsible for providing the aid. And finally, he should understand exactly how to provide it. All the scientific evidence indicates that the results should be quick, effective assistance. In general, then, your best strategy when in need of emergency help is to reduce the uncertainties of those around you concerning your condition and their responsibilities. Be as precise as possible about your need for aid. Do not allow bystanders to come to their own conclusions because, especially in a crowd, the principle of social proof and the consequent pluralistic ignorance effect might well cause them to view your situation as a non-emergency. Of all the techniques in this book designed to produce compliance with a request... This one is the most important to remember. After all, the failure of your request for emergency aid could mean your life. Exactly right. Very practical advice for very real, practical, everyday emergencies and crises that you might encounter in the real world. But also, I think, for the broader topic of, of what we're talking about here, solutions to the various societal problems that we're facing, how do we actually elicit help in those situations or how do we get people to join uh whatever it is a rico ring or anything else that we're interested in doing how do we actually persuade people to come to overcome that inertia that's provided by the social proof i don't see anyone else doing this i don't see anyone else we have to set that example and the more particular you are the better i, I don't want to over intellectualize this today so i will i will wrap this up by making a direct appeal for your help. I want to test the hypothesis of today's Solutions Watch episode that it will actually serve our interests to be clear and concise and also to speak boldly and righteously, standing in the truth of what we know to be true and acting upon those things that That people will ultimately come to our aid, that we will have a community from that. So I need your help. No, 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 not any of the other people who are listening to my voice right now. You, particularly you, the person who is listening to my voice, I need you to do something for me. I need you to try to apply this principle in your life over the course of the coming week. It could be something small and trivial. It could be a big major issue. But I want you to try to apply this idea of being very specific in setting an example and asking for help in a specific way to try to achieve something that you know is good and true. And I'd like you to report back to me about what happened. What did you do? How did it go over? What what resulted from that? Will you be likely to try again? If so, what could you do differently or what would you do the same? That is valuable feedback, not just for me, of course, but for everyone. So I suggest that you leave this in the comment section. Of course, Corporate Report members are invited to log in and leave your comments in the the post at corporatereport.com so that we can all learn together about methods that work and things that we can do and how to apply that. That is, of course, the underlying point of Solutions Watch. So yes, you, not the other people who are listening, you in particular, I need your help with this. I hope you will come to my aid. Having said that, Uh, I will finally leave you today with a classic video that I think visually illustrates the point of today's Solutions Watch in a way that uh, any amount of bloviating and talking and intellectualizing will fail to do. It's helpful to see it in action, and I do mean see. So if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, I would highly recommend that you, at the very least, stop driving and make a note or make a mental note to seek out this video to watch later because it is worth watching and seeing this phenomenon in action. The video is called First Follower, Leadership Lessons from Dancing Guy, and I think it pertains to the overall point of today's Solutions Watch episode. Having said that, I think we're going to leave it here for today. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you for joining me today and looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.
4: You've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement. Then let's watch a movement happen, start to finish in under three minutes, and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore, it's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd, and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers, because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point, and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute, you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in.